morning. Our readings today are taken from the book of Job. The first is chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, which can be found on page 509. And the second is taken from chapter 22, starting at verse 5, which can be found on 525. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's son and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry, though you were a powerful man owning land, and an honoured man living on it. And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. This is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you. Why is it so dark that you cannot see, and why a flood of waters covers you? This is the word of the Lord.
Um, <clears throat> one thing before I begin, you'll see in the notice sheet that I put an insert in, uh, in the notice sheet. Um, now, this is a mixture, uh, it's a suggested reading. One of the things I said a couple of weeks ago about uh, abusive churches is that they don't you know, weigh people down. So this is not compulsory. <laughs> but can I encourage you to think about how to, if you feel you know, you've got wounds and they're real, and in a sense we're just dipping our toe in the water over these last few weeks, Actually, there are an amazing number of books out there that might really help you to make sense of where it's got in it, who you are, and how you find it. There's a real eclectic mix of books on here that come, up, come at it from all sorts of angles. And I can say without reservation that all of them are good, but you won't get on with all of them, some of you. But what I would like you to think, if you think, yeah, I would like to take something forward, I'd come and ask me to say, well, this is what I'm thinking about, what would help? There's some from the evangelical tradition, some from a Pentecostal tradition, some from a more contemplative tradition, some from a general life position, that actually would just help you think, where is God at work in bringing healing and restoration to me? Uh, my, my children mock me endlessly for all sorts of things, but one of the things they occasionally mock me for is the fact that I'm getting old in their eyes. And uh, occasionally I've been known in, in the last year particularly, I've noticed a little program on, uh, that used to be on BBC Two that's become a bit more of a sleeper hit uh, that I know one or two of you uh, do watch. It's called The Repair Shop. Has anybody seen The Repair Shop? It's just sort of a, a gentle little BBC Two story. And there's a, there used to be, it's got a bit more populist now. I don't like that. But actually, one of the things it used to say on the introduction was this, is that it, as they talk about all these specialist repairers and restorers, they say, we, re we revive, we restore, and we resurrect objects. We revive, we restore, and we resurrect objects. As a church, we need to be in that business with people. We need to know how to go about it. We need to be safe with each other and find a God who we trust to go about that work of restoration in us. And so that's why I'm encouraging you. But, you know, take it or leave it, but it's a really, I suggest, have a look further. This morning is very personal, though. It's very direct and it's very straight. See, because the thing is this, I wonder whether you're a person who sat here this morning and have had dreams and ambitions for your life and actually it's turned to ashes. Something that you've longed for all your life, put your trust in all your life and actually those dreams and those hopes have been shattered or even those dreams have been taken away from you forcibly. It might have been a terrible accident that happened at some point in time. It might have been that suddenly serious illness came to you from left field. Or it's actually a relationship that's been at the center of your life has broken down completely. And actually, you're devastated. Last week, um, we have neighbors uh, just down from where we live. And our neighbors, Ros and Brian, uh, retired. He was a lecturer up at the university and we gradually got to know them. And last week, Brian, was just down at the YMCA, just down there, in the gym, dropped dead last week. Instantly. Roz hasn't got a clue. Utterly, 
utterly consumed by grief. When I was at university, in the second year of university, it was in the halls of residence. There was a lady who used to clean our particular halls of residence, and I gradually used to get to know her as the cleaner, who my room wasn't too unclean, I will just add before I say that, but it's, um, and got to know her, and when I got to know her, I started talking to her, say she was about mid-50s, and tragically, her husband, who worked for the MOD, worked in an underground secret shelter just outside York, and one night, he went to mend some things, and to cut a long story short, he was crushed to death in an automatic door that was about a meter wide. Her life had stopped that day, and she never recovered. Absolutely found no healing whatsoever. This week, I sat with someone who unprompted by me, started to tell a story that said that something that happened 25 years ago has completely destroyed their life. That was their words. Still today, the narrative of the life is that event so destroyed them that they've never been able to have a life that they hoped, that they wanted, that they expected, that they dreamed of. We finished last week's sermon playing the story of Ray and Vi Donovan as they sought to forgive courageously, amazingly movingly for me, of a child, their own child, who'd been killed and try and find forgiveness for the people who'd killed him. See, I don't know about you, but life can be very, very tough. And actually, sometimes we do carry gaping wounds from some of the experiences we go through. Some of those wounds may be from church, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Some may be from the fact that people have done stuff to us, and we may have done stuff to them, by the way. And actually, those wounds are still as real and play out just as much today as they did five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 50 years ago. And this morning we're talking about shattered hopes and dreams. Let me just pray. Father God, I thank you for your healing power. Thank you that you're trustworthy. Thank you that you are in the business of restoration and healing. Would we dare to trust you this morning with the deeper things of our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know whether um, many of you have moved house relatively recently, but it's always really interesting when you move house and you realize you've got a load of stuff. And the question with all your stuff is, what do I do with it? Do I keep it or do I get rid of it? And actually, I still remember um, about 20 years ago when Joe and I uh, got married. And you bring your, both your lots of stuff uh, to, to create a new house. And actually, you make an assessment of what the other person is bringing into the new household, as whether that's something that you want or something you want to get rid of. And I still remember, you can see it's still quite painful for me, I still remember Joe coming in, getting into some of the boxes of some of my stuff, picked up some of my knitted jumpers by my mother and my aunt, and said, really? <laughs> I won't tell you what I did, uh, I was part of that. But what do you need to get rid of? Seriously, 
What do we need to get rid of? And we're going to think about that first as we look at the life of Job. You see, as we consider what it means to find healing, I want to think about a little bit about the myths we need challenging that we need to get rid of if we're starting to find a place of healing from some of the things that have happened to us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 11 this. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. I wonder how many childish myths we still live and play out day by day. I know two that I come across all the time in my own life, but also in others, two that go out all the time, let's go something like this, is that life will contain no surprises or shocks for me, and to be honest, everything will go according to my plan. You know, life won't have any shocks, and my plans will succeed. So when I wake up in the morning, I already have my plans for the day. My plans never include an accident, they never include disruptions or bad news for me or my family. And my plans are that God will bless everything I have planned, and it will all work beautifully. Nobody will get hurt, no bad news for the people I love or those near me. But these are childish myths. The book of Job in the Old Testament that sweeps away are childish myths about how good people only get good things in their lives. They only get their hopes and dreams. Only certain good people will get everything they want. Because what we see in Job, we see at the beginning in this story we read that Alex read to us well. If you go to the end of the first bit we read, in verse 13, what we see is there's a picture of feasting and drinking of the family of Job's household. And this was a day like any other day at the beginning of the book of Job. This was just a normal day. Job woke up early in the morning He gave thanks to God for all that he had. But on this day in Job 1, the story of Job recalls, on that day he lost absolutely everything. On that day he lost his wealth, he lost his health, and he lost his children. 19 years ago, on September 11th, 2001, was a day like that. It was a beautiful autumn day. People were grabbing their morning newspaper, getting their takeaway coffee as they headed to the World Trade Center. And the sudden total devastation as as buildings are destroyed and thousands of lives are lost in an instant. And the weeks that have followed are filled with funerals and grief. And I don't know about you, but do you ever ask, how, why and how does God allow that? Why and how does God allow that? You see, that was a day like any other day. Pain and suffering so often come to us suddenly. They come to us instantly. And they come to us utterly unannounced. And we human beings like the illusion that there is order, beautiful order, to our lives. I've heard so many times, particularly in our current generation, they say, you know, I just don't want to hurt anybody in life. If I be good and I don't hurt anybody, my life will go well. 
Most of us crave for that sense of order, of security and comfort deep down, even if we express it in slightly more ambitious ways. But our response to pain and suffering is to try and grab hold of that and try and make sense of that and say, for example, if only, if I only hadn't been at the World Trade Center that day, if only I hadn't continued to behave like that to my wife or my husband, if only I hadn't accepted that invitation, if only I'd taken that promotion, that means my career would have been everything I thought it should have been. If only. So how do we get rid of the if only in our life? Firstly, one of the key things, key myths that we need to get rid of is this. If only God would be more evident, then everything would be fine. You know, I don't know whether you've been through times where you're really struggling with the idea of faith and you cry out to God and say, God, make yourself more evident to me. Show up, God. It's time to show up. You know, if any of you'd say, make yourself more evident, I will follow you, I'll read my Bible, and I'll pray. Make yourself plain, God. Then I'll trust you. And you know what the Lord did? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So is that really true? That if God made himself more present... If God was more obvious, then you would be more faithful, or I would be more faithful, or our lives would go better. Really? Think back to the Old Testament, to the children of Israel. As one writer put it here, he said, the children of Israel are like every other human being, only more so. Did God make himself evident to the people of Israel? Of course he did. He split the seas. He fed the manna from the skies. He, he brought fire on the top of a mountain on Sinai. And in that picture when Moses, for example, example as well, when their leader Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments in his hand, having God revealed himself to Moses, what does Moses come down to see? He comes to see the children of Israel dancing and worshipping a golden calf. You see the same pattern in the New Testament in the followers of Jesus. People like Peter make big promises, say we're going to do it. This is what we're going to do. They're with Jesus. They experience and see Jesus do extraordinary things. But ultimately, when suffering comes, when challenge comes, they walk away. It's a myth. If God would only just turn up in this way, so-and-so way, then I will love him and follow him as I know he longs me to. Secondly, if any God would answer this one prayer, then actually my life would be all good. You know, if I, God, if you just answer this one prayer, I'll be satisfied. You know, it may be for a marriage partner. It may be for a struggle with health or disease that you're going through. Maybe for a perfect job or a child. But is it really true that if God answered that one prayer that's burning in your life today, then actually everything would be good? Of course it's not. Why? Because we don't just want, for example, a child. We want a healthy child. 
We want a happy child. We want to see a child who has lots of friends and flourishes through school. We want to see a child who has a good job and finds their vocation and is successful and it all goes well for them. We always want something beyond what currently we're asking God for. See, the thing is this, is that we think when something goes wrong in life or when something isn't answered, the prayer is answered, then somehow it's God who's on trial. God's love is on trial. God, if you're just, you will do this. It's God's justice on trial. And this is the heart of Job's error at the book in the book of Job. See, God doesn't do what we want. And this was the test presented to Job. In the book of Job, Job thought God was on trial. Job believed that God had to prove himself to Job. Will God give me what I want? What Job didn't realize, that it wasn't God who was on trial. It was actually Job who was on trial. And the trial boils down to simply this that we see in verse 9, actually coming from the mouth of Satan. Does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan says to God, the only Job, the only reason Job serves you and follows you is because of the ways you've blessed him. Job doesn't love you. Job's just a hard hand. He's like an employee, an employer-employee relation. It was only there for the benefits he gets. If you take the blessing away from Job, there'll be no faith left, no love left. And Job here is a picture for us, of all of us, especially during times of disappointment and tragedy of shattered dreams. Will you continue to love and serve God, even when God doesn't give you what you're praying for. Thirdly, we need to get rid of the if only of, if God, God was just entirely fair, then this would happen. All of us hold on to this childish myth that life should be just and fair all the time because God is just and God is fair. And we should only suffer if we've done something wrong. We should only come across pain if actually we've broken the rules because that's how rules work, right? That's the way it should work. And of course, in the Bible we see there's some truth in that. That's actually good biblical theology. And we see this throughout the Bible, but particularly in the wisdom literature, like in the book of Proverbs. There's an order to this world. And if we break the order, we destroy ourselves. So, for example, if you break the physical order of things and jump from a building, you'll destroy yourself physically. If you break a relationship order and actually you uh, treat your wife or your husband or someone in your family cruelly, unkindly, you'll destroy your relationship and your relationship. If you break the spiritual order of life, which is offers God's offer of forgiveness and neglect him in relationship, then you'll destroy your spiritual relationship too. There are consequences to our choices, and we see that. But the book of Job shows us something different. See, Job suffered virtually everything a person could suffer 
He lost all his possessions, his business, his reputation. His community mocked him. He lost his sons and his daughters. And Job was racked by physical pain all day long. If you read the whole story, you'll see that. And it's hard to appreciate the extent of Job's suffering. But what in the bit that Alex read in the second bit of that Alex read in in chapter 22, what we see is Job's friends say the reason Job is suffering is because he deserves it. He deserves it. It's payment for Job's sins that we see in chapter 22 in 5 to 11. Is not your wickedness great, Job? Are not your sins endless? As then they go on to explain what they see as Job's sins. His friends savage Job with accusations of his failings. But the thing is this. Job's friends are wrong. Job's friends are wrong, completely wrong. Job was not an evil man. Job was a good man. The whole story begins in verse 1 saying that Job was blameless and upright. In verse 8 itself, we see God himself says of Job, there is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Yes, Proverbs and other books do show us that there are consequences to our choices, both good and bad. But not always. But not always. They're not the only forces at work in the world. People don't always get what they deserve. Philip Yancey, in his wonderful book, Disappointment with God, tells a story of a young man called Doug whose life was destroyed in lots of different ways. His family's destroyed, his own personal life was destroyed. And Yancey asked this chap, Doug, he said, what did you learn? Weren't you disappointed with how God treated you? Doug Doug said, you know what? No, I'm not. And the reason is this. I learned first through my wife's illness, then especially through the tragic accident they went through, not to confuse God with life. Not to confuse God with life. Doug said, I'm not being stoic. I'm not just trying to will myself to think everything's fine when actually it's disastrous. I am upset. I feel that I'm free to be angry and feel freedom to shout out and curse and rant at God at the injustice and the the evil that has come across my life. I'm able to express real anger and real grief. But I feel that God feels the same about the accident as I do. God is grieved. God is angry. I don't blame God for what happened. Each of us tend to think that life should be fair because God is fair. I mean, that's sort of how we think it should work. But God is not life. Life is not God. And if I confuse God with life, then I set myself up for a life of disappointment. You know, life in this world is not going 
to God's intended design. Fallenness, brokenness, sin is part of our experience. But Jesus has sent his one and only son into the world to bring salvation and healing and restoration and hope. And so as well as throwing the things out, I'm going to encourage you to continue to do some things if you want to find healing from your shattered dreams and hopes. Firstly, continue to believe in God's word. You know, so many of us get tempted into a pick-and-choose approach to the Bible. They say, you know, I love Jesus. Jesus is good. Tick. Jesus. But I can't go along with what the Bible says about this or that. And actually, the pick-and-choose method, in my experience and in lots of other pastors' experience, really won't lead you through the valley of disappointment and find healing and restoration. The principle on which Jesus staked his life was his submission to Scripture. I'm told that the 1,800 verses of Jesus' actual words in the New Testament, and of these 1,800, 10% are actual quotations from the Old Testament. Jesus is frequently saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. So let me put it this way. To say that you're a follower of Jesus and, you don't dis- and that you disagree with Jesus' approach to the Bible is to deny the very principle on which Jesus lived his life. Or put it another way, you're conjuring up in your mind an image of Jesus that isn't really real at all. Jesus staked his life on what God said in Scripture. Finding healing and from shattered dreams and broken hopes requires us to do the same thing. When Jesus was facing his darkest hour on the cross, he was quoting scripture. So when we're at rock bottom, maybe your marriage is in a mess, your health is completely shot to pieces, or your life is going in a completely self-destructive direction, how do you find faith? How do you find hope? How do you find healing? Hold on to scripture. Because in scripture, I find the God who heals. Secondly, continue to believe in God's kingdom. In the book of Job, this is another bit of the book of Job in chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. We see this. This is Job. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. What's Job saying here? He's saying, I'm not going to be ultimately defeated. Love is not going to be ultimately defeated. The whole universe is not going to be ultimately defeated. Why? Because the end of the story is this. All life ends in joy. All life ends in joy. That's our story. As the psalmist says, sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. See, the way not to recover from shattered dreams or broken hopes or a destroyed life is to spend your life comparing yourself 
with how other people's lives are going. It's really pretty disastrous. You'll become bitter, you'll become envious and disappointed with God. One of the key ways of finding hope and healing is what Job did. He saw his current suffering in the light of something greater, something bigger, something joyful that was still to come. You know, as Christians, we know that we don't all get it now. But we know that in the end, it's glorious. It's glorious. And there will be moments for each of us when we simply have to choose God's kingdom. We're going to have to cut against the world. We're going to have to cut against some of your friends who are like Job's friends, frankly unhelpful. And against maybe people in the church who are actually saying stuff to you and that really isn't what God thinks, isn't what God sees and what God wants for you. And you've got to choose to continue to believe in eternally in the promises of the kingdom of God and to act and behave like your relationship with God means that you can keep walking even when things are really tough. Because beyond the brokenness, beyond the toughness, beyond the suffering, and beyond the pain, there is a glorious future of healing and restoration. And lastly, to continue to believe in God's ultimate purposes. You know, I began uh, this by saying that most of us love the idea of a life that we know we're secure, we're safe, and you know, somehow if God would just give me the formula to get through life that I could follow, then to be honest, it, life would be a lot simpler and a lot easier for me. And actually, most of us like a formula because it gives us the illusion that our life is in control and that we're the ones who are in control of it. We love the fact that if I do ABC, then I know exactly where I am. I'm in control. It's all good. But Christianity is not about formulas or control. Christianity is about a living relationship with a loving and eternal God, an infinite, joyful, gracious God who isn't the subject of our control but comes to us even in suffering, even in hardship, in mercy, love, and grace. You know, you and I don't need to understand everything in the world. Many things aren't easily explainable, but we can trust God. We can trust God. And I can't explain why to two different people such different experiences happen. Ultimately, I can rationalize things, but I can't ultimately explain that. But I do know a God who uses even the darkest things to bring restoration and to see redemptive work through his hands, to achieve good even when it looks bleak and dark. There are so many witnesses across the globe, across the churches, even in Britain too, of ministries that started with people who went through deep pain and deep suffering. And rather than seeing that as a curse, they actually became the very means about which God started to do extraordinary and beautiful things. From places of profound failure and humiliation, God took the broken pieces of our lives 
and brought goodness and beauty out of it. God is able to heal our gaping wounds. The church, we are called to be wounded healers. And as we open our whole lives to God, as God attends to us and we open ourselves and and ask him to get at work in our wounds, God can uniquely be about the work of redeeming some of those and blessing other people through it. God will repurpose the broken pieces of your life to make a difference in this world. None of us, there's no one here this morning who is beyond hope, who is beyond God's healing touch. All of us can be healed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your healing power. Thank you that however dark, however disillusioned, however difficult our situation may be now or has been in the past, that you're able to come to us, to meet with us, to bring healing and restoration and revive us. Holy Spirit, would you come afresh upon us? Would you fall afresh upon us and tend to some of the wounds we all carry? And by your spirit, would you be about the work of healing, of setting free, of putting a seal on those wounds and start the process of healing and restoration? Would you help us to grow in trust of you? Father, I pray too for anybody this morning who feels abandoned by God. God just seems so distant. You're going through difficult things. You're finding it really hard. And the story in your head is God has somehow rejected me, gone away from me. And you're being crushed. You're being crushed by the lies of the devil, lies of others, and some that you're replaying. I just pray, Lord Jesus, would you come to those people this morning particularly? Set them free. Would you unshackle us from the stuff that holds, the ties that bind, and would you set us free? Thank you that we're not a people who are defined by our sin, but defined by the brokenness, defined by all that's wrong in the world, but there's a bigger story and a greater story that we put our trust in, in and through Jesus. That means that we can be hopeful, compassionate, and bring healing. Amen.